The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn together to Ephesians chapter 5, continuing our study in this book and looking pretty extensively for the past two weeks and in weeks to come about marriage, looking at marriage and certainly a subject that the church needs to consider, reflect on, especially in light of where we find marriage under attack in the world in so many ways. Ephesians chapter 5 If you're able to stand, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word, Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 33. Would you stand? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, and so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, we do pray for your truth to penetrate our hearts and minds, for you to give us eyes to see, for you to bless your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The movie Back to the Future, which is about, I don't know, 30 years old almost now, Marty McFly is a high school student who accidentally goes back in time from 1985 to 1955. And in so doing, he interferes with how his parents first met. So a lot of the movie concerns Marty trying to be a matchmaker for his parents. And of course, it's funny because he's a high school student and they're high school students as well because he's gone back in time. And he works at trying to get his dad to ask his mom to the senior prom or some such thing. Of course, there are all kinds of twists and turns in the plot, but eventually everything turns out well. Marty manages to save his family by getting his parents reintroduced, and he gets back to 1985. But here's where I want to make the point of the illustration, because Marty manages to sneak in his house after he's back from the future, or back from the past, I should say, and uh, he wakes up the next day and finds that his whole family is changed for the better because of the slight change in the space-time continuum or whatever you want to call it. And now his older brother, he finds, is getting up and he's wearing a suit and he's going off to this really good job instead of some fast food place where he had to wear this funny-looking hat. And his sister is more kind to him. And his parents have a much better marriage. Before, you have this brief glimpse of them as being very distant from each other, not 
talking hardly at all, just complaining about each other, fighting. But now they are clearly in love and enjoying each other. But of course, it took a time machine miracle, so to speak, to bring this about. Because they met in a different way, everything was different in their marriage. Well, I refer to that because clearly it's a very romanticized view of how to have a good marriage. Just get in a time machine, go back and fix how you met, and then everything will be fine. That's kind of the idea. The Bible's view of marriage is not overly idealized or romanticized in that way. Certainly it involves romance. Certainly there are many good things about marriage. But nonetheless, the Bible is very realistic about marriage And yet, at the same time, it's more glorious and hopeful than anything Hollywood can ever imagine about God's transforming power in marriage. And this evening, I want us to step back. We've been looking at Ephesians 5. I want us to step back and actually try to look at the big picture of marriage from a biblical perspective. And our focus is really on verses 31 and 32, so we're skipping ahead in the text. We're going to come back and look more at other verses before these. But in verses 31 and 32, it speaks about, it quotes Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. A very crucial biblical text about marriage. And then in verse 32, Paul states it this way, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The overall point that I want us to take from these verses is this. God's ultimate purpose for your marriage is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church and to so bring glory to God. God's ultimate purpose for marriage is to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church and so bring glory to God. That's really what Paul is saying here. He says marriage is like a window. It's like a window to realities beyond even earthly marriage itself. It's a window from which we look through and see realities about Jesus and his bride, the church. I like to think of it like those doors in Narnia. If you read C.S. Lewis' Narnia series and In some of the books, Aslan sets up a door that the kids go through. You know, and the door is standing there in the field, but they go through and they're in another world. This is kind of what the Bible is saying. Marriage is a, a window to the world of God's realities. And so, this verse is telling us that marriage uh, is a public proclamation of Jesus Christ and the church. And every marriage on this earth will, by definition, proclaim something about Jesus and the church, either in a way that some degree will honor and glorify God, or at the other extreme, will dishonor God, because it is proclaiming something false about Jesus and the church. And that's why Paul's teaching here in Ephesians 5 on marriage is public teaching. The Bible has it in public letters written to churches and that they're supposed to read and study. It's appropriate and necessary that this be public because the whole church has a stake in the marriages of the church. In other words, because of what marriage exemplifies, 
the church has a rightful and proper concern about the marriages within the church. Marriage is something that is fundamentally to be encouraged and supported by the church. And breakdowns in marriages and difficulties in marriage are issues of concern for the whole church. And so the pastors and elders of this church are deeply concerned and prayerful about the marriages of this congregation. There's a lot at stake. And so even if sermons on marriage don't apply directly to you right now in your life where you are at this season of your life, I hope you see why it is important for us to teach and preach on these things. There is much at stake, especially in our day and age when we know that marriage itself is under such profound attack. And so the central thesis here is that we are called to glorify God in marriage. If you are called to marriage, if you are married, then the overarching principle is that you're called to glorify God by reflecting something of Christ and the church. And I want then to look at two fundamental implications from that thesis, so to speak. And the first is this. If the purpose of marriage is to glorify God in this way, then marriage always involves heart issues of worship. If this is the overarching purpose of marriage, if glorifying God, as we know from what Scripture says, involves loving God with all our heart and mind and soul, then heart issues will always come to bear. You know, when I preach, I often find myself thinking of illustrations from everyday life about how our heart issues are exposed by all kinds of things in life. All of life exposes our hearts. And so we talk about driving on the road in the busy Lancaster roads and how somebody pulls out in front of you and that exposes your impatience and wanting to be in control. Well, that's true. But if that's true for driving on the road then how much more is being married going to expose the heart issues of our worship or our idolatry? You see what I'm saying? If you're bothered by your boss at work, or if someone at school is picking on you, and that exposes heart issues in your life, then what will happen when you're involved in the closest relationship that is possible on this earth? Yes, as a single individual, you can have very close relationships, but there's no doubt that marriage ranks up there as the closest relationship on this earth. So if everyday life exposes our hearts, if the typical trials and tribulations of life, how much more will that be true for marriage? Because marriage involves such a fundamental issue of glorifying God and being a window through which we are called to show Jesus and the church to a watching world. And the world is watching your marriage. Your neighbors are watching your marriage. Your neighbors know you profess Christ, most likely, and they are seeing how you live. People at your job or at your school or wherever you are are talking about and thinking about how you talk about your marriage. There are key passages that talk about issues of the heart. 
We could look at Luke 16, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus tells us we can't serve two masters. We'll either hold to the one and hate the other, and we know that that's true. Or Galatians 5, 16 to 25, Paul does that wonderful exposition of the flesh warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary to one another. So we'll either be conforming to the lusts of the flesh, or we'll be showing forth the fruit of the Spirit. And the Christian's life is one of warfare, flesh versus spirit, spirit versus flesh. Or Matthew 6, Jesus says in verses 32 and 33, we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and not be consumed with worry and anxiety about all the things that pagans seek after. Or one of the key texts is Matthew 12, 34, where Jesus tells us, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he lists all the various things, sample sins that flow from the heart. And he's pointing to the fact that worship is at the heart. Our heart is controlled either by God and love for him and faith in him, or we're given to idolatry in some way. In James chapter 4, we could take time to talk about how James, in verses 1 through 4 there, talks about conflict in human relationships, and he says, what causes fights and quarrels? Don't they come from your lust, your desires that wage war within you? And he goes on to talk about that. We find in marriage is a microcosm of our life in general. Our heart issues of worship are exposed by marriage. Think of it this way. These are some ways you could phrase this. Whatever is ruling my heart will produce fruit in my life. We are always worshipers. We are going about life functionally as worshipers. And whatever is ruling our heart, and if it's not love for Jesus Christ and trust in Him and dependence on Him and the fear of the Lord, then it will be idolatry. And we could make one more step beyond that. Even desires for good things may usurp God's place in my heart and rule me. Maybe I've used this illustration before, but I've talked about this Boston trip that we took when our daughter was in school up there and how I remember that trip because I really like things to be orderly and I like things to be smooth about a trip up to Boston. And somehow somebody had organized all the construction crews to work on our route on the way up there. I don't know who had done that. They knew we were going. And how when we got up near our goal up at Gordon College, I said to my wife and my one daughter who was with us, I said, have I been complaining about the road crews? And they said, have you been? (laughs) Okay. So even though it may be a good thing to desire a smooth trip up there, these things can rule our hearts. That may be a good desire, but if it's ruling my heart, then it's become something that's sin. Now, Under that, we could add this. When we're talking about heart issues, and as the Scriptures talk about, we cannot serve two masters. We are prone to look at our sinful desires as neutral or as necessary given, so to speak, in our lives. I want to keep coming back as we think about this. We're to reflect Christ and the church. Glorify God in that way. We tend to look at our hearts as neutral, as the things that we want as fine, and other people are getting in our way, and they're the ones who are wrong. And that especially happens in marriage, doesn't it? One professor I had at Westminster put it this way, in marriage, a husband and wife tend to hook 
each other's idols. In other words, when my spouse is not helping me get what I want, my wrong response indicates that at that moment, my heart is being ruled by some desire. I'm a task-oriented guy. I like to get tasks done. Early in our marriage, I realized that if I was starting to take the trash out from the kitchen trash can and Patty was talking to me, it wasn't really good for me to walk out through the family room into the garage and put the trash in the trash can and say, I'm listening. Somehow that didn't communicate love and cherishing to her. We tend to hook each other's idols. It's okay to be task-oriented. That can be a good thing. That may not be the way to truly love your spouse at that moment. We are prone to look at our sinful desires as neutral or okay, but we see our spouse's sin much more easily. And we must wage war against sinful desire in the power of the gospel. And only Jesus Christ and his love and his transforming power helps us when it comes to these heart issues that are revealed by the close relationship of marriage. Think of all the different ways in marriage that there are understandable differences. There are personality differences. In fact, when I counsel couples who are engaged, I sometimes say something like, you know, initially, maybe you're attracted to the differences that there are. And those can be very good complementary things. But often in marriage, those are the very things that drive each other crazy and can easily cause conflict because they are different. Maybe The husband is very punctual, and the wife is not, for different reasons. But um, I can just imagine the scenario that uh, the husband doesn't really know how to deal with his wife being a little bit late. So she's hooked his idol, so to speak. It's not wrong to want to be on time. So what does he do when the wife gets in the car and they're running 10 minutes late? Some of you men know what he does. He drives like a maniac, right? Why does he do that? Well, because he's being ruled by that idolatry and he's proving to her and punishing her for being late. So she'll never do it again. And it works really well, right? Marriage helps us to see our sin. It exposes heart issues. We tend to have self-centered responses. And We want the other person to be like us or to help out our agenda for life. But no matter how good of a husband or a wife you are, you could be perfect in your responses. By the very definition of marriage, you will get in the way of your spouse's agenda at times. It just is always there. So for a marriage to reflect Jesus Christ in the church, there has to be a tremendous amount of self-sacrifice and giving, and working at giving up your natural desires and things that might be important to you. I remember when we went to Grove City College to take our son there to tour it before he was even in school out there, and we went out in March, and we were getting a tour of one of the freshmen's men's dorms, and the person giving us a tour was saying, this is the men's lounge in this dorm, and notice how they set up all couches in the dorm lounge as stadium seating for March Madness. It was an interesting thing. They had built this kind of plywood thing. The couches and the chairs were all in this ascending order so all the guys could watch the TV in the lounge and cheer on their favorite March Madness team. 
Now, there wasn't a corresponding stadium seating in the girls' dorm. It just shows you a little bit of the difference, right? It's different. Women are different from men. It's very easy when you think about all the differences between women and men that our heart issues are hooked. Our heart issues are exposed. And we find that we need Jesus Christ. We need his work in our lives. We need the Holy Spirit to not only expose our hearts, but then by his transforming power to help us to look to Jesus Christ to be changed. That's the first implication. The second implication of our main point is this. If we are to glorify God in our marriages by reflecting Jesus Christ in the church, then the enduring power of marriage is covenant love. Covenant love is that Christ-like love for one another that flows out of God's love for us in Christ. And when we think about what Paul is writing here in Ephesians 5, he says he's speaking about a man leaving his father and mother and being united to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. And he says this is picturing Christ and the church. And so it tells us that the love that's to be in marriage, the the love that a husband is to have for his wife and the love that a wife is to have for a husband, and certainly there's love both ways, is to be like Christ and the church. It's Christ-like love. It's covenantal love. Verse 21, which I didn't focus on when I preached on the verses before the ones referring to husbands and wives, says it concludes the section before the section on marriage with this brief verse, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, commentators debate the exact relationship of that verse, the verses before it and the verses that come after it, but most agree that it's a transitionary verse. It, in a sense, summarizes what Paul has been saying about life in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, and it leads into marriage. I believe that's true. I believe it concludes one section and introduces the next because And in fact, the very word submitting is not even repeated in verse 22 when it says, wives submit. All English translations have to provide the word submit. It's not there in the Greek. It just says, wives to your own husbands. It's supplying the verb from verse 21. What it's telling us is that the leading sentiment of the entire passage is mutual subjection, mutual submission. And that doesn't overthrow God's order for the home. There's to be mutual subjection in the church too. And that doesn't mean there aren't to be elders who rule the church. It doesn't overthrow that. There's to be mutual subjection in the church. In fact, the elders are to lead in being servants. Isn't that the case? They're under shepherds, under Christ, who was the supreme example of servanthood. So to say that verse 21 is the leading sentiment of the entire passage doesn't by any means contradict God's commandment to wives to support the leadership of their husbands, to submit to them in that sense. But it's showing us something about the nature of this covenant love. We could almost say it this way, there's to be mutual subjection, and that's really what Christ-like love is all about. And The subheadings of that are wives submit, husbands love, because it's the primary expression of that 
in marriage. These are the primary means that this mutual subjection is to occur. I must first give myself to Christ in trust in him, in obedience to him, in dependence on him, and then I am more and more enabled to do what God calls me to do in marriage. Notice, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's this Christ-centered, Godward orientation of covenant love that dominates the whole picture Scripture gives us of marriage. It's a glorious thing. It's a love that the world doesn't usually see. The world sees glimpses of it here and there, but it's truly a Christ-like thing. Scripture is calling both husband and wife to lay down their lives for each other out of the fear of God, out of reverence for God, out of love for God. That's the overarching pattern. That's the enduring power of marriage. And that is so contrary to the individualism of our society. There's a book that was written called Divorce, How and When to Let Go, written by John and Nancy Adam. And just to quote parts of this book, they say, yes, your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital, searching mind. Isn't this just a lie from hell itself? You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer good for you, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. It's hard for me to even read those words. It's just so contrary to what the Bible says. But that's the mindset. I sometimes read articles like this just because I want to see what the world is saying. And there are all kinds of articles out there that are asserting an individualism a self-absorbed, self-centered individual that goes contrary to what covenant love is all about. Now, we certainly approve of individuality. There's individuality in marriage. A husband and wife do not totally lose themselves or lose their identity in marriage, or they shouldn't. That's not good. But not this worldly individualism. We know that this is very wrong. This individualism is wrong. Love to use a quote from someone else, is the pursuit of our own joy in the joy of the beloved. Love is not the commitment to go without joy in a relationship. It's the the commitment to be the kind of person who seeks and finds joy in the holy joy of the other. There is no way to exclude self-interest from love, for self-interest is not the same as selfishness. Selfishness seeks its own private happiness at the expense of others. Love seeks its happiness in the happiness of the beloved. It will even suffer and die for the beloved in order that its joy might be full in the life and purity of the beloved. That's the kind of covenant love that Scripture is calling both husbands and wives to, in their different expressions of it in marriage. It reminds me of the quote by C.S. Lewis, where he talks about the call of God to act lovingly, to love others, and typically feelings follow when we act that way. That's biblical. That's wise. The Bible calls us to that. And there are so many verses that talk about love 
loving others in a sense of building up, encouraging, and ministering to that other individual. It's like Ephesians 4, 29 that we recently looked at. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. How does that look in marriage? What are the practical outworkings of covenant love in marriage? I'll just mention a few of them here. I have six areas. One is spiritual unity in marriage. One practical outworking of covenant love is that a husband and wife have a spiritual unity. They pray together. They read the Bible together. They can talk about spiritual things instead of worshiping the empty things of this world. They are worshiping God. A second area is mutual, humble service. They are seeking to honor each other instead of honoring self. A third area would be active companionship. Instead of distancing from each other, like Marty McFly's parents were in Back to the Future, there's time together. There's shared activities. There's talking about things that they're interested in. They're serving one another in the daily things of life. The fourth area, honest, current, constructive talking. Rather than guarded, hostile talk and fighting about things or just not being able to talk, a marriage in which there's an expression of this covenant love will be growing in being able to talk about the problems in the marriage and in the family, to keep current with these things, to listen to each other, to seek to understand the other person's perspective and his or her interest in this, their concern to listen, maybe not to agree, but to be able to talk about it. And the fifth area is mutual understanding. And that goes a long way. There are all kinds of things that when a couple gets married, they have to work through all their expectations for what marriage should be like. What should the roles of each of them be in the marriage? What are they going to do? How are they going to take on the daily responsibilities? How are they going to balance the budget? What about when the kids come along and discipline has to be done? All these things, there is to be a growing mutual understanding in terms of these expectations, in terms of how they view things. So instead of just having frustrated expectations where they always are at each other's throat, there's growth in being able to talk about and define these things and work toward a goal in these areas. And then finally, I would call it a God-centered ministry mindset, where they see conflict as something that they have to work at by Christ's power to talk about and resolve and to work to resolving instead of manipulating each other. There's a place in the Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is at the great good city, Minas Tirith, and the enemy, the Dark Lord, has his agents there as well, and it involves this very untimely death of the prince there. Gandalf cries out with these words, Work of the enemy, such deeds he loves, friend at war with friend, loyalty divided in confusion of hearts. I think that's a very wise declaration Tolkien, the author, put in Gandalf's mouth, in confusion of hearts. And that's frequently the case when our marriages are not being characterized by this covenantal Christ-like love. So we've seen two major implications of glorifying God in our marriages. I want to conclude by just 
talking about practically working at this. A very brief look at this. Those of you who are married are called by God to work at your marriage to the glory of God. You know, there's a higher calling in marriage than just our pleasure, our comfort, what we want. There's the glory of God, and that is a road that calls for Christ's power at work within us. And it calls for working at renewing your covenant love for your spouse. It's a daily thing. It's a weekly thing. Four points I have. Briefly, I'll just mention these. How do you go about that on a daily basis? Number one, ask God for help. Nothing like marriage to show you your need for the transforming power of God. Even the best marriages know that marriages expose our sin. So ask for God to help you see your sin. James chapter 1, verses 23. 2 to 25, James tells us the Word of God is like a mirror. And we know we're not supposed to go away from the mirror with our hair disheveled and food all over our faces and our shirt. No, we're supposed to clean things up. James is saying, look at the mirror and keep God's Word. Seek to obey God's Word. Seek to believe God's Word. Ask God for help to see your sin and then to give you power by the Holy Spirit to work on that area of your life. It's a very practical area. Anyone who is married and anyone who's not married and in a relationship with anyone in any close way to friends or at their work or anything, we all know what this is like. We need God's help to see our sin. Ask him regularly and frequently for help to see and to change in this way. Secondly, remember your union with Christ. Romans 6 is that classic passage that talks about our union with Christ. How shall we who, are, who have died to sin live any longer in it? We've died and been raised with Christ. And this Easter week, what a week to think about our unity with Christ, our union with Christ. So much better than back to the future's time machine. That will never work. Don't, kids, don't try to make a time machine to fix your life. You need union with Christ. He is the one who changes us from within. And what, what a better way to think of that then your union with him in your marriage, that Jesus Christ is work by his power making you that way. So thirdly, repent and look to Jesus Christ in daily acts of putting sin to death. Repent and look to Jesus Christ in daily acts of putting sin to death. Remember, Ephesians 5 is a continuation of where we were at the beginning of Ephesians 4, when Paul launched into the practical application part of Ephesians. And he's talking about putting off and putting on. And he's talked about a lot of different areas. Marriage is one of those. It's an important one. It's one of the arenas, probably the biggest spiritual project in most of your lives, if you're married, that you will have. An arena for you to be called by God's power to go the way of the cross to put to death sinful self by repenting of sin and looking to Jesus Christ to work in your life. And fourthly, and this is the one I think that we're very weak at in our Western society, seek the support of fellow believers. It doesn't mean talking about your spouse in a negative way to somebody else, but it does say, according to Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, that we're to not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin by encouraging and exhorting one another daily, as long as it is called today. 
the author says. And so there's that clear line of teaching in Scripture to seek the support of fellow believers. And so we're back to where we began by saying that the church has an important interest in the marriages of the church and the marriages that are represented here. Marriage is a gift from God. There's a, an illustration that John Piper tells about Abraham Lincoln and his marriage. And I know some of you have certainly seen the Lincoln movie, which I haven't had the opportunity to see yet. But Piper talks about the marriage of Abraham and Mary Todd. And he says that Abraham Lincoln himself brought debilities to his marriage. He says he was emotionally withdrawn and prized reason over emotion. Mary said that he was, quote, not a demonstrative man. When he felt most deeply, he expressed the least. He was absent emotionally or physically most of the time. For years before his presidency, he spent four months each year away from home on the judicial circuit. Piper says from the reading he's done, it seems, it sounds like Lincoln was indulgent with the children and left the management of them almost entirely to his wife. So speaking about Abraham's weaknesses in the marriage, Mary had her weaknesses as well. She often flew into rages. She pushed Lincoln relentlessly to seek high public office. She complained endlessly about not being rich enough. She overran her budget shamelessly, both in Springfield and in the White House. She abused servants as if they were slaves and ragged on Lincoln when he tried to pay them extra on the side. She assaulted Abraham on more than one occasion. She probably once chased him with a knife through their backyard in Springfield. And she treated his casual contacts with attractive females as a direct threat while herself flirting constantly and dressing to kill. And she grieved the president greatly by her constant display of her person and her fine clothes. Piper goes on to say that it was a pain-filled marriage. But he says, what was the gain? They kept their vows. They embraced the pain even if they could not or would not remove it. And he says, what was the gain? He says, God will give the final answer. But here are two historical assessments. One is, how was it that Lincoln, when president, could work so effectively with the rampant egos who filled his administration? Quote, the long years of dealing with his tempestuous wife helped prepare Lincoln for handling the difficult people he encountered as president. In other words, a whole nation benefited from Lincoln remaining true to his marriage. And the other point he makes is, he says this, quote, over the slow fires of misery that he learned to keep banked and under heavy pressure deep within him, his innate qualities of patience, tolerance, forbearance, and forgiveness were tempered and refined. So he concludes, America can be glad that Lincoln did not run from the fires of misery in his marriage. There were resources for healing he did not know, and short of healing, embracing the fire is better than escape. It's Piper's assessment and kind of application of Lincoln's marriage to these things. You don't know how God is going to use your marriage in your life, in your spouse's life, in your children's life, in the church's life, in the wider community's life, in your grandchildren and great-grandchildren's lives. I find myself thinking of my grandparents and their marriages more at my age than I did when I was in my 20s. 
And I think that's probably true for most of us. We don't know how that 50th anniversary celebration will impact the generations to come. Some of you may be in very difficult marriages right now, and you may be wrestling with God about what he calls you to do. Work at your marriage for the glory of God. It is a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. May God strengthen the marriages of our church, and may it be to his great glory. Amen.